0: Janssens Robinson on the show. Hello. Hello, hello. Nice to see you. I am delighted to be in New York on this
1: beautiful fall day.
0: So you just released the latest edition of the World Atlas of Wine,
1: and it seems to be going down very well. People are really more excited about it than um, other editions. I think. I think maybe, maybe partly. I think the designs just lifted it a bit. I think because there's an eye version, um, I, I couldn't. I didn't until that appeared. I didn't really understand why the art guy was getting so fussy about the pictures. But now that I've seen the way you can blow them up and how brilliant, literally, they look on an iPad, I understand why so much more effort has been put into the illustrations. And of course, um, it's just bigger and um, and so updated. You know, it really. <laughs> It frustrates me when people say, yeah, yeah, I've got that book. I've got the fourth edition, you know. And when I know that it takes me two years to come up with, to revise everything, to make a a new edition. Even the sixth edition will not do. You need the seventh.
0: Because I thought it really was uh, quite a bit bigger and also included things that I didn't expect to find about how to make wine or different grape varieties. I mean, uh, you're known and Hugh Johnson are, are known for those aspects in other books, but I found some of them. Uh, condensed in the beginning, you know, about what is terroir or what is oak or, you know, stopper issues. So, I mean, I thought in a lot of ways it could be uh, uh, what we all want, which is that one textbook to recommend to people.
1: Well, of course, it was launched in 1971 by Hugh when there were so, there were far fewer wine books. So I think his vision initially was that it was a kind of one-stop book. And that's why it had quite a lot of introduction, even about history, which, of course, at that stage, Hugh was dying to write about and, kept, and afterwards did write a great book called The Story of Wine, which is the popular history book about wine. Uh, so, yeah, it's always had lots of, of general stuff at the beginning. Um, and it's just such a fight for the space, though, you know, because there, there are definite constraints. We couldn't go above a certain number of pages for weight reasons and so on. Um, so we, we, have, we sit and agonize about, you know, shall we drop this and shall we add the other? And it's, it's quite an interesting audit, really, of the world of wine and, and what seems to be vibrant at the moment.
0: But there's also a real concision in, in the writing. It oh, has to
1: be, tell me about it. <laughs>
0: well, to say white amortage is just as great as the red amortage that they used to use for a Bordeaux blending, mm. that's an amazing sentence. This it's got two,
1: two quite strong, controversial, well, well debatable, got, um, strong views in it, yeah. yeah. And it's quick, it yeah. sums it up very, yeah, and yes. I
0: find that throughout the book. But I also find really great maps quite often, especially... Uh, some of the new maps, but also in classic regions of France. I was really excited to see the soil types. Yes. Chateau neuf de Pop.
1: Yeah, and that's a new one for this 7th edition. And um, I, I think we'll probably, and we, the, the was new for the 6th edition was a soil map for Saint-Emilion, which is quite important. And I, my guess is we'll be adding more and more soil geological maps as time goes on, as we all get more and more interested in that aspect of things.
0: Because it's interesting because you think of Chateau Pop and you think of the Galais stones. And here's. But there are so
1: many different soil types, aren't there?
0: There's all this yeah. other. I
1: wonder whether the Galais stones became so um, much in the public eye just because they make good
0: pictures. <laughs> you know, there was also something very interesting in there, which in that particular reference text about Chateau Pop, where it was the first time I could think of where someone said, you know, Climate change has changed things to the point where people are planting more Muvedra and, and using less Syrah in the southern Rhone. So it's not just looking for cooler vineyards, it's not just harvesting early, it's not just uh, you know keeping in acidity at vinification, but it's also changing out grape varieties, which is, to me at least, the first time I've heard of someone doing that in a classic region. Yeah, I mean, there, but, of course, you can blend.
1: But. Exactly, and there they have much more freedom than... Um, most regions, so many great varieties to play with. But it is interesting, isn't it? And I must say, I think Chateauneuf is in the vanguard of um, the high alcohol problem. You know, there's so little they can do with Grenache to make it interesting, unless it reaches quite a high alcohol level. And so you've got these cuvées coming in. I mean, 15% is just Normal now, and uh, some i tasted from one vat at Chloé Pap that was way over sixteen. Uh, actually, did t- still taste wonderful and beautifully balanced. Because I'm not, I'm not against alcohol per se, if it's if it's great balance and, and all the rest. It's just that when it comes to actually drinking it, which is what after all wine is all about, a high alcohol wine is a bit inconvenient. I think because I like the process of drinking wine. And I, I don't like to have to sort of limit myself, you know, by tiny sips just because I know I'll feel terrible the next day.
0: Well, it was actually uh, Hugh Johnson that recommended in one book to add Perrier to California Chardonnay. <laughs> I think his tongue
1: may ago. have been in his cheek when he... Yeah.
0: <laughs> but tell me about Hugh. Uh, mm. You know, when did you Old first friend. meet? It's been Well, we, years.
1: we launched the World Atlas of Wine in the UK at a party last week and... Uh, Hugh obviously was there, and my literary agent was there, and my husband was there, and I—it's our wedding anniversary today. Congratulations! And thank you very much. And I realised that I'd known Hugh and Karadik, my literary agent, longer than I've known Nick, uh, which is since, uh, since I must have met Hugh in 1976, and he was probably responsible for my first for for turning me into a freelance wine writer because previously I was editing a wine trade magazine full-time job. Then as a sort of part-time exercise, I edited a little newsletter that a wine club that Hugh was involved with, the Sunday Times Wine Club, um, sent to their members. And I suppose Hugh saw that I was able to do other things and he recommended me to be the wine correspondent of the London Sunday Times. So I, I owe lots to Hugh. And then in 1998... He sidled up to me at a party and said, "You know, I think I need some help with the world out as a wine. You know, would you take it on?" And I, I did realize how much work was involved, so I didn't say, "Absolutely straight away." And I think probably Nick said, "Say no," um, but it's a great. There's a great team behind it, so uh, it's it has been fun. And it's it's what is the in a way the most fun, is listening or reading reports from the sort of network of consultants that we have around the world and seeing what they report are the changes that they've seen in their areas. And so often these changes that they report as though they were special to their region turn out to be global. Um, And I'd say there are probably three of them at least uh, that were obvious when putting the seventh edition together. One, very much that I think the pendulum has reached its max on big, high alcohol, as we're talking about, um, wines that show off winemaking. And I think nowadays, so many people are deliberately trying to express place, vineyard or at least region, through the wines they're producing. Wine's a little bit more refreshing, a bit more transparent, um, not necessarily advertising how much new oak they've got in, in the cellar. And I think that's a great um, development. And I love, and of course, it plays into the hands of, of an Atlas because it is um, optimizing geography, if you like. Uh, another very obvious trend uh, was that everyone seems to have tired of the international grape varieties with a massive reputation and are really interested in either rescuing local indigenous varieties, often, not often, but sometimes from unknown vines, vines they know are growing there but can't identify, Um, but nursing them, propagating them, doing micro of them, and if they produce decent wine, then multiplying them and properly planting them out commercially. Uh, But if they're not in an established wine region where you can go back to historically established um, varieties say, Australia, then they're mad about what they call alternative varieties, even though they've got this ponderous, for understandable reasons, uh, quarantine system that takes something like seven years to get um, a new variety that they want through through it. But uh, there's been a sort of absolute burgeoning of importing varieties from Italy, Spain, Hungary, all sorts of things, Greece, uh, so that the the range of varieties that you can find even in Australia uh, has probably at least quadrupled in the last um, five years. So that's an interesting trend. Um, And then I suppose we've still got um, the effects of climate change, which have been evident since the first edition that I was involved with, which was the fifth World Atlas of Wine. And they're just getting more and more dramatic. So that particularly Viticulture is spreading towards the poles and I'm amazed by how many vineyards there are now in Northern Europe um, throughout Benelux, for instance. I mean, Luxembourg always had a, a wine industry, but now I think it's ripening its grapes naturally as opposed to chucking in sugar in huge quantities. Um, a, a lot of vineyards in Holland, not all, some of them making really quite decent wine, Belgium as well. Um, I tasted a really good ice wine from Sweden the other day. And Klaus-Peter Keller has helped plant one Riesling vineyard in Norway, which is yet to ripen. But, you know, if things carry on as they are, it may do. And then, of course, in the south, towards the South Pole, there's less available land yet to plant. But they're still going further and further south in Chile and Argentina for, for planting vines. They've gone as far as they can in Australia and, and New Zealand. Um but what's interesting is towards the equator, the um, vine growers are getting more and more skilled at tropical viticulture, at making something halfway decent out of vines that, left to their own devices, would produce grapes about three times a year. You know. So um, altogether, the, the, I, I do remember so strongly the first time I looked at the World Atlas of Wine. What edition? I don't know probably was the first edition because I started writing about wine in 1975. And Hugh had these nice two narrow bands around the world, you know, saying very neatly, this is where the vine is grown in temperate climates. But th- that map has changed considerably because it's, um, it's a, m- a much wider range of latitudes now.
0: And as you describe, it really is at the extremes uh, much different, but it's also in the classic regions. I mean, one of the statistics that almost uh, shocked me was that in Barolo the vineyard surface has increased 40% oh, since the late 90s, which is something you say in the Barolo text. Mm. And it says, you know, is, is are we going to be able to get these grapes ripe in those vineyards that have been planted, which are at the extremes of this classic region. Yeah. So not even yes. in Norway, but in a place that we think of as already saturated with vines, 40% more in a couple decades.
1: And I suppose one can't ignore commercial forces, which are behind that expansion. Uh, people just know, seeing that Barolo sells really well and you get a lot of money for it. So there's the um, encouragement to plant Nebbiolo um, in places where it's a little bit dodgier. Perhaps some of them are betting on climate change continuing and um, and you know land that previously wasn't thought suitable for the variety will actually yield some decent wine. I don't know about this market, but... Certainly in Britain, we are seeing in our supermarkets and things some pretty inexpensive Barolo, you know, um, that gives you a little bit of an idea of what Barolo tastes like but is just light years from, you know, the good stuff. Um, So, um, uh, and also perhaps, I mean, the, the one country that has expanded more rapidly than any other, planted more new vines and develop more new regions is Chile, actually. Um, and that's a nightmare for us with uh, the Atlas because we put the, the convention is to put um, north at the top of the page. And when you've got this long, thin country, it's an absolute nightmare. Um, and it's been expanding to the north and to the south because they've re, re, um, de- developed grape wine vineyards in old Pisco country in the far north where they're cooled by Pacific influence and or altitude so actually what we've done is is expanded the map north and south but had to turn it on its side a bit like the coke door goes on its side and um and Alsace but no Chile is quite a quite a challenge and then They've sort of redrawn their own map, haven't they? Because it all used to be in these neat valleys which ran east-west but of course had massive variation between the, um, the the bit on the west closest to the Pacific, then the sort of hot middle. That was cooled by the Pacific, the hot middle, and then a bit of altitude on the Andean foothills. And now they're starting to slice it three ways north-south. So it's it's kind of a a patchwork at the moment that not everyone is using. You know, they they call the coastal strip Costa, but you don't see Costa on many labels, actually.
0: So it was interesting because you made this point before, but you also made it in the introduction of the book that it really is uh, global trends that you see. You see a village of wine. And do we need to be reminded of that sometimes in an era where wine writers are specializing and specializing and specializing some more? Is it... Really important to take a step back and look at the whole picture in a way that's almost kind of rare now, but used to be the norm?
1: Um, I suppose both approaches are useful. And it's great, I mean, if you know that you absolutely love Barolo, then wonderful to latch on to a Barolo specialist who's who knows every last little vine, and that will give you a huge amount of satisfaction. Um, I suppose I I, I am personally probably slightly more interested in the macro trends and how they mesh with what one might call real life uh, and um, uh, just and, and the evolution I, I you know I've been around so long now that I've I've seen so many things come and go you know I do remember a time when I genuinely in the only as recently as the mid-90s and I genuinely it looked as though the world's vineyards were going to be planted with nothing but Cabernet, Chardonnay, and maybe another five grape varieties. You know, and that—gosh—that's changed. Um, it's fun. I, I like—I like the synthesis, I suppose.
0: Because your grape variety treatise has gotten quite a bit bigger. More recently, in <laughs> terms of entries.
1: Well, yes, I, I, I. if you mean the two books I've written about grape varieties. So in 86, Vines, Grapes and Wines was published, which was, I don't know, a mere 200 pages or something. Um, and I was doing a signing down at Ledoux Wines on Saturday night. And someone came in with an old battered copy of Vines, Grapes and Wines for me to sign and sort of said rather um, um uh, angrily, um you know, this is a bit out of date and there are a few varieties that aren't in here. (laughs) So when I signed his book, I did say, I advise you to check out Wine Grapes, our complete guide to 1,368 grape varieties which came out last year. (laughs) Yes, it's been fun to see all that develop and our knowledge develop. Thank you, DNA Analysis, which has helped hugely. Thank you, particularly my co-author, Jose Vuillamo, who's done a lot of that work and um, drawn it all together. That's a fascinating Um, global uh, jigsaw puzzle, really, detective story, you know, working out the exact relationships between all these varieties. And I think the next stage will be more like a social history of working out how a variety got, say, from um, Jura to northern Spain, you know, and that, that kind of thing. It'll be really interesting.
0: You once told me that your publisher had approached you with the idea for a great variety book in the eighties because there was an atlas already that's
1: right and and they knew Hugh was working on a history and so they the, the way they put it to me this was Mitchell Beasley, the sort of prime british wine publisher um that and very at that stage run by James Mitchell, who very sharp, and he just said, we've sliced the wine cake." You know, geographically and historically, and now we want to do it varietally. That was their idea. But I did get, and
0: I am very, very interested in it, fortunately. Because it's, it's amazing now that one person has done most of those slices, including also you've done an autobiography, <laughs> and you've also done uh, I Oxford haven't done Companion, history. I haven't done Kind history. of like encyclopedia, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, has some history. In it, but yeah, you, but it's other people's it's history.
1: What was fun was having the right and ability to go to really top academics, histor- historians, who respect the Oxford Companion series and have written these wonderfully knowledgeable treatises on the history of, you know, maybe it's the history of amphorae or or ancient Rome or whatever, um, and you just know that that you, no wine writer could could give you that amount of knowledge. So it's, it is a lovely compendium. Of, um, and it's, it, was, it really was, I know people say this and it sounds um, a bit pious, but it was a privilege to have to be under the umbrella of the Oxford Companion because it's a, it's a great series and, um, and has a sort of stature of its own. And, and I was, at, one of the, you know, people quite often say, what are you most proud of? I was absolutely amazed and very proud when Oxford University Press told me at the end of the first year that the Oxford Companion to Wine, the first edition was published, which was it came out in autumn nineteen ninety four that um the the Oxford Companion to Wine had been their best seller apart from the dictionary, which is amazing, and it sort of continued to go on.
0: But I also loved your autobiography, and one of the things you said in your autobiography is that Hugh Johnson had been very kind to you. He didn't <laughs> yeah. say fair, he didn't say appreciative, he didn't yeah. say uh, inspiration, you said kind. Yes, uh, that's true. For a lot of people who may not know Hugh, especially in America, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the character of the man oh. that may not come through in the writing. Right, well, he, he does write absolutely beautifully.
1: That's the number one thing. Um, and he's done wonderful, polished job on my texts in parts of the, the new atlas, you know, he just, he's just got that, it's not, um, it's not stylized, It's it, it doesn't read as though he's sat there for an hour trying to work out the sentence, um, but it's, and there are lots of short sentences, I know I'm very guilty of writing sentences that are far too long, and it's quite colloquial, um, I admire it a lot. In fact, as a side complete tangent, um, I've had on occasion to lecture Master of Wine students on writing, because they have to do a lot of it, and sp- particularly the essay question. And I always say, if you want to g- get a, a grasp of a good the right sort of style, I would say The Economist magazine is excellent, and it's not unlike Hughes' style, um, although Hughes obviously is a spe- specialist writing. Very direct, quite colloquial and friendly, but just stylish, you know. Anyway, so that's Hugh's writing. He's great fun. It's lovely. We've traveled a lot together, sometimes plugging books and sometimes just generally, often eaten together. Our spouses get on very well. Uh, we kind of, um, he's, he's sort of, what, 10, 11 years ahead of me, so he's way ahead of me on the grandchildren stakes. But we're, you know. Uh, I've recently watched him and Judy move from their fabulous big Place in the country um, to a much the next stage in London, and um, it's inspired us to think about the next stage too. Um, is um, likes a good gossip, which I do too, um, and is very kind. He's generally very kind, very um, uh, hail fellow, well met, but but with tongue in cheek um, and. Can sometimes be surprising, you know, sometimes come out with just a very, an acerbic, but absolutely justified comment. Yeah, it's very
0: good company. There was somebody else who's worked with you in a couple books now, including this one and also Wine Grapes, and that's Julia Hardy. Oh, yeah. She
1: she's doesn't an...
0: get a lot of acclaim. I wonder who she is and what she's up to. <laughs> she
1: is amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, she was, she did French and German at Cambridge, and... Um, I heard Alexandra Champon say her French is absolutely indistinguishable from a native speaker. I don't know about her German. And she became a professional um book editor of the most punctilious kind. I mean she's absolutely amazing. Um don't know anybody who um goes into is so goes into so much detail and cares so much. It, um, because she copy edits everything that's written on Janice's Robinson.com, it's, it's had a very bad effect on me. I used to be quite punctilious. Now that I know that everything is going to go through the Julia Harding mesh, I just kind of think, oh, Julia, I'll pick that up, you know, <laughs> which is very bad. Um, she then got the wine bug and um, did a series of the wine exams. And while she was doing those, she came to see me having read the Oxford Companion and thought and came to see me out of the blue and said, I want to work for you. And I said, you must be joking. I'm a terrible control freak and um, I'll never have anyone working for me. And she went away and got a job in the wine department of our most upmarket supermarket waitress who actually put a lot of effort into choosing decent wine. And but didn't really enjoy working in an office. She's more of a work-at-home person. And then told me how she'd done the Master of Wine exam and come out top. And she really would want to work for me. So I said, oh, all right then. (laughs) So since I think, was it 2003 or 2005, I've employed her full-time and she works both on the website and helped enormously on the third edition of the Oxford Companion. In fact, because she'd just done the Master of Wine exams, I made her queen of all the Vitti the and the vinny entries, which is wonderful because they're very, very important. And you don't find scientific detail available to general readers much for wine. So that's the Oxford Companion is one of the very few places you will find that. So it's important to get that absolutely right and absolutely up to date. And then... Um, Jose Vuomo, who's a, a specialist in um grape genetics, contacted me and said he wanted to do a book about grapes with me. And I suggested that he, Julia, and I got together to discuss it. And he wanted it to be about the twelve best-known international grape varieties. And I managed to persuade him that it should be about every single grape variety we could find that was making wine commercially. And I think we made a very complimentary triumvirate. And Julia did wonderful bits of research on um, exactly what was growing where and how much, and did a lot of tasting too, a lot of descriptions of some of the more obscure grape varieties. Um, and I kind of shaped it and polished it and, um, and wrote all the main grape variety entries. And um, José, of course, came had all the scientific, References for which DNA specialists suggested that X was related to Y, and which one showed they were wrong, and why. And you know, it's it, it worked well. I think it's won every single major book prize that. Wine Congratulations yeah, on the so, Rotor. Uh, oh, yeah, oh, lot, it's not just Rotor, mate. Oh, I But that's you. the
0: most recent, right?
1: Um, I don't think it is. Is it? Oh,
0: sorry, I'm behind. I uh, think we get might the be. news late.
1: <laughs> I can't remember. Anyway, I can't think of one. I mean, we've been very lucky, very lucky. I think people were impressed by just how big it was, really. I was. Yeah, yeah. You just thought, well, if it weighs seven pounds, it must be worth
0: an award. <laughs> <laughs> but but speaking about that, you chose to do the Atlas also digitally.
1: Yeah, well, actually, that was a publishing decision, obviously. We don't, you know, we're the production line workers, we don't get to make these decisions. But I think they've done a very beautiful job, I must say. And a book like the Atlas really does translate well to an iPad. And, and, you know, zooming in on maps and being able to magnify labels and see just what it does say in the bottom left hand corner and all that sort of thing. And of course, there's beautiful pictures.
0: There was a really uh, amazing picture of a chateau in China. Yes, that isn't that funny? Just like a chateau somewhere else. That's very. That's a very common
1: phenomenon that the, in China. If companies have the money, they build wine chateau lookalikes, or at least French chateau lookalikes. A lot of them look suspiciously like tourist traps in Loire sort of thing, um, and call them chateau, this, that, and the other. A lot of them are kind of virtually empty inside They're they're a kind of hook to to attract tourists and don't always go with vineyards but you know you can see them in the countryside sometimes um miles from anywhere but but they're a dream and and they's they're supposed to express an idea of french viticulture i think
0: The first person I recall to talk about the emerging Chinese wine market was you. Uh, uh, Over a decade ago in Boston, you gave a lecture about where wine was headed in the future. And you spoke about uh, Chinese wine uh, and also the Chinese market and the hope that everyone could have at least half a glass amongst a billion people and that how the world would change if they did. But you also said at that time that a lot of Chinese wine was not actually from China. It Mm. was being imported and relabeled as Chinese, but it was actually being grown somewhere else. Is that still true today? I noticed a map in the atlas of Chinese vineyards. What's what's different?
1: There is much more um, drinkable, proper Chinese wine available now. That's still um, a tiny proportion of what is on sale in China called wine. There's also a, a lot of very basic stuff on sale in China called wine, which I think is all grape. um, And it probably is a blend of locally grown and imported in bulk. But there is also some stuff which doesn't even have grapes in it. Uh, It's just coloring, a bit of alcohol, water, and a few chemicals. Uh, I'm in the middle of editing a fascinating 10,000 word account written by a guy who had been a counterfeit lawyer Uh, specialising in China, nothing to do with wine. He finished his job in China and was about to fly home via Hong Kong and some friends said, why don't you come to this wine fair? And he overheard uh, some people who were obviously taking lots of pictures and obviously plotting to do some wine faking in China and got really interested. And he spent a month in China going around the back streets and the wine stores and examining in detail the labels, masses of photographs, and came to me. And I published a lot of this on, on my website and was really interested in it. And it's funny, some of it, you know, Chateau Lafitte, spelt L-A-F- E E T. And they're very, very unsophisticated, a lot of these. I do spell it that way a lot of
0: times. And I wish Julia Harding <laughs> was around to tell me not to do that. Uh,
1: and of course, I mean, this we're not talking about faking fine wine here. We're just talking about mass market stuff and making a buck in a very unsophisticated market. Things labeled Bordeaux Port, for instance. Um, and he tried to get the wine trade revved up and uh, to back him, I suppose, you know, and pay him to go and you know, like a white knight and clean up the, the Chinese wine market. And he found it terribly difficult that most wine producers were very lackadaisical and said, oh, it happens, you know, it's China. But I think in the end, I, I've only a quarter of the way through editing it, so I haven't got to the end of this exciting story. But I think that the CIVB, the Bordeaux official um, body, did actually hire him. And he, I think he claims that he has um, sorted out really a substantial quantity of wine because he knew what to do once he'd found fakers and he knew the the legal system in China and all that sort of thing. So I think it's, it is getting a little bit better and I'm sure it will get better. Um, but meanwhile, masses and masses of vines are going into the ground there, so there will be more and more Chinese wine. I don't think, I, uh, for all that has been written, I honestly don't think the Chinese at the moment are thinking about being major exporters of wine, but I dare say it will happen. We served um, a Chinese Cabernet Merlot blend at our launch of the World Atlas of Wine last week because we wanted wines that represented new vineyards. And um, as Hugh said, I mean, it was beautifully packaged with a picture of one of these fake chateaus on the label being sold by Berry Brothers for £39. That's about $60 um, per bottle. It tastes like, you know, a minor Bordeaux sort of thing that you can, the Bordeaux market has got a surplus of basic stuff. So you could pick, you know, pick it up on a shelf in New York probably for $15 or something like that. Um, But, you know, face is all in China, appearance is all, and there's a lot of very, very smart packaging, more money going into the packaging than than the wine, all for the all-important gift market.
0: There have been several other maps added to this edition, including one of Etna in Sicily.
1: Mm, that's an exciting place, and um, the Etna wines are, are those that where you really can taste the soil. I know that geologists insist that there is no scientific mechanism for transferring what's in the soil into what's in in a wine produced on that soil, and I I believe them, but I am intrigued because my experience suggests that there is a correlation between how wines taste and the soil in which they're grown. So I don't think we're anywhere near the end of the road on examine, on understanding that uh, relationship. And certainly, the, of course, the Etna vineyards, uh, pretty much all old vines, which is always exciting anyway, and mostly grown on vineyards which are sort of covered with old lava. you know. And you get, at the end of the palate, you get that kind of hot, grainy, um, very mineral kind of uh, sensation. And it's fun and it works with both whites, reds. And actually, I, I've loved the odd rosé that I've had from Etna vineyards too. So it's a place with a, a real story to tell. And, and of course, the, the volcano keeps erupting every now and then, which adds a little piquancy. And then when you look at the map... The volcano is, is pretty much a cone, but you see that the vineyards are just in a, a sort of certain sector of it. it. It shows very graphically how important orientation
0: is. And there's also been some additions to the German maps. Mm. Well, that's a
1: climate change thing, partly, that in the old days, vines struggled to ripen that far from the equator. But now, thanks to climate change, they get fully ripe, hence an ocean of delicious dry Riesling. No, they don't have to kind of add sugar to, you know, cover up any wine faults. Um, I love Trocken, lots of Riesling Trockens, and uh, red red wine that is made now from fully ripened grapes, typically from Spätburgunder, Pinot Noir, all the rage in Germany. So prices are pretty high by the time they're exported. But we've added a map of the R Valley, which has a great reputation for its Spätburgunders, even though it's really quite far north. Um, we've added one of um, Kaiserstuhl for pretty much the same reasons. And, of course, we've added a map of that bit of the Rheinhessen that um, is now such a hot spot of great younger German winemaking talent, people like Keller, Wittmann, Stefan Winter, all sorts of really hot shop winemakers who are far from the old uh, Nierstein region on the on the River Rhine. We add uh, the Nahr, of course, has some of the most um, gifted uh, wine producers. And so we've, we've highlighted um, around Monsing and where um, um, Emmerich Schoenleber is, for instance. And the Nahr had a bit of a shake up.
0: It's an embarrassment of riches. Yeah, it's I mean, great, it's and so they're so
1: lovely balance as well, aren't they? You know, they're they're just a little bit fuller than the Mosels, although I love Mosel, um, and not quite as as um, concentrated as the the Rheinhessen wines. No, Very good.
0: Was that a big shift for you? Because I remember you used to chronicle the Rheingau in a different mm. era. What you know, looking at Germany today, what's yeah. been the biggest surprise? The
1: Rheingau is a funny one, and and. To us, what you have to remember when we're putting the atlas together is that creating a map is the biggest cost, actually. So we have to be we can't just say, okay, we'll throw away those four detailed maps that we've got of the Rheingau and commission a brand new one, which is sort of slightly better, reflects the importance of the Rheingau. Um so I am aware that the Rhine, because the Rheingau was more important and initially was mapped in great detail it's it's sort of slightly too big for its boots in the atlas if you see what i mean um and and another challenge is getting the right scale for each map um and and knowing into how much detail to go and and if places are just an inconvenient shape um you know sometimes you'd have to put them on a double page spread because they're they're kind of a despite an octopus shape, and they just wouldn't fit onto a single page.
0: There seems to be a re-engagement with Eastern Europe. Did we realize that, politics aside, there was a lot going on there that we just didn't know about before the curtain fell?
1: Well, I don't think there was a lot going on in the Soviet era because the impetus was very, very much quantity over quality. And um, obviously a lot of um, uh, communal, you know, just, just... grow the grapes, throw them into the back of the truck, semi-process them at, um, in the region itself and truck them as juice to a big bottling plant stinking of sulfur near a city. You know, that was the model. Nothing like modern wine making, wine growing today. So whereas there were probably grandfathers living through the Soviet era who had a memory of what Good wine was made in their regions. It pretty much disappeared in that era. Um, and I suppose the excitement is, is rediscovering that and um, getting away from that huge vat mentality into separating the best, best plots. And in fact, I did a, a, a wine tasting on Saturday, part of the um, New York Wine and Food Festival, and one of the wines was um, Montenegrin, you know, Vranach is their signature grape variety. And it's Montenegrin wine production is dominated by one big producer with the great name of the Agri Combinat, July the 13th. <laughs> uh, I think they're also known as Plantaze. I don't know how you pronounce that. Um, but, you know, you could just see the um, potential of the Vranach grape. But this, you know, they really, I think, only export one wine or maybe Two versions of it. I've only ever seen one, so you just can imagine everything being put because they've they've got they claim to have they say we've got the biggest vineyard in Europe. I think what they mean is we have access to well over two thousand hectares. Uh, I can't believe it's one big vineyard. Not looking at the the topography there, Uh, but I think they chuck it all in together. And I bet you that. you could find some slopes and some particular vineyards that would give you the most sensational wine if you took the trouble to separate it.
0: One thing I was fascinated to see was the addition of where specific vineyards were in the Champagne region. So, mm. for me to, uh, because what you've done is added the seven single vineyard bottlings and that vineyard site you've with the little
1: Hawkeye here, you've really done your homework. What there. I <laughs> was amazed
0: to see, I mean, because I have an idea of, uh, you know, where Pierre Peters gets his grapes from for And mm. I I get that that's in the Côte de Blanc. Mm. But I didn't know, for instance, that uh, Clos St. Hilaire was right next to Clos de mm. And I thank you for pointing that good. out. I thought that was a great addition. Oh, good,
1: good, good. Well, just, you know, any other suggestions gratefully received for the 8th edition? You're just always trying to find useful geographical thing aspects of wine, really.
0: But one thing I was fascinated to see disappear—that's not in the current edition—is North Africa.
1: Ah, yes. Well, I was—I was wondering about that. Yeah, I, I mentioned earlier how you've got to make these horrible decisions. Well, of course, you see, Algeria is in complete turmoil. Um, and w- although in the 50s it was you know, a, a huge producer of wine and responsible for an awful lot of the wine that went into um, the stuff sold in, in France, um, thanks to politics and religion, it's, um, it's the wild, just the wild, you would never um, decide to go and invest in Algeria, in Algerian vineyards at the moment. Tunisia's got its, and Egypt have their upsets. Um, there, there are... Um, wine industries there and uh, I I believe I know that the quality of the small amount of wine produced in uh, Egypt has improved as well it might over the last few years but uh, Egypt isn't exactly stable Uh, I was in Morocco um, just under a year ago and found a few really nice wines there and of course Morocco has a long history of cooperating with France and investment from France. But the map we had was all along the North African coast at a very um, a scale which really didn't tell you that much and you do hardly see um, North African wines outside their country of origin because that's another factor. Um, if you're not going to ever find the wine uh, or you're not particularly curious about it's not an expanding place, the way I say that China is, then you've got to make, you know, we had to make room for all our 25 new maps. Um, And coming down to it, we decided Turkey was more interesting and relevant because they are trying to export than North Africa for the moment. So the North African map has been mothballed. But I know the king of Morocco is very, very keen to develop tourism in Morocco. So I could imagine Eighth, ninth edition. There would be a, a, a new Morocco-only map, perhaps showing the exciting, burgeoning uh, state of viticulture there. As long as um, you know, fundamentalists don't sort of raise uh, raise the ground in the uh, of the the vineyards.
0: What about that emerging market in Turkey? What does that look like?
1: Very, very interesting because Turkey is actually quite close to where we all agree, where it is agreed that the wine was first produced. In fact, it's where supposedly, you know, Noah and Mount Ararat and all that are. Uh, It's got hugely varied terrain and a lovely array of indigenous grape varieties, each with their own very strong personality, even though often impossible to pronounce. And uh, I've I've been to Turkey reasonably recently, and I certainly try and keep up with Uh, any tastings of Turkish wine. We're seeing an increasing amount in in Britain. I don't know. Do you see much here?
0: Uh, You're the third person in a month to mention Mm -hmm. Turkish wine to Mm -hmm. me, so Mm -hmm. I think I'm just behind. (laughs) I need to catch up. I've never had one, but I've heard there's some good whites.
1: The Turks very cleverly uh, were hosts to the last, um, what do they call it, it used to be called the European Wine Bloggers Conference. I think it's got a posher name, oh, like, sure. you know, digital like, communicators. Or, it was
0: in Istanbul, right? Yeah. 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 I yeah. saw pictures on yeah. my Instagram feed yes. from people who are a lot cooler than me who were there.
1: <laughs> so they, um, that you know, that put Turkey on. That was a clever thing of them to do, actually. There is, though, um, countervailing that, uh, a trend from the government, an anti-alcohol. Um, anti-alcohol measures gets them votes from um the right wing, and they've just put some in place whereby you can't have a um, a store selling any alcoholic drink within. X meters of a mosque sort of thing. Um, so quite a few anti, anti-wine anti measures have come into play. And, the, in fact, that was part, you know, there were riots in Istanbul not that long ago. And the imposition of these new measures was a major factor Was that, in that. the wine
0: people? Was it that wasn't were just the wine about about people.
1: Is but that, actually, okay. it was the, the Turks, quite rightly, are now... You know, they're they're a very developed nation. They're they're a Western na- nation, and they were just very cross that suddenly these social controls were being imposed on them without any discussion whatsoever, um, and and not being able to buy alcohol was 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 one of them.
0: So in this country, we often are associated with University of California Davis thinking and degree days. You've done grapes. You've done. Atlases and now I notice, and maybe it was in previous editions and I didn't notice, but now I I notice uh, regular temperature information. There's
1: little fact boxes. Actually, I introduced those with the fifth edition, because um, but I thought it was which tell you, for instance, you know the the average rainfall, average temperatures in the growing season, um, and they list the major viticultural challenges and the major grapes that are grown. And I think those are really useful, but I I did d- suggest that they went, they were corralled into a little box for sort of geeks only, uh, and didn't take up our very precious text space, uh, which is for more, you know, colorful, descriptive uh, language. But I'm glad you noticed them.
0: And how do you think the editions have changed since the fifth? I mean, in terms of... Tone, it seems like uh, you've come on uh, stronger than what was there from Hugh's writing. What would you say the differences are? Five, six, seven? What have the changes been?
1: Fresh from having done the Oxford Companion, in five, I tried perhaps to ram in lots and lots of facts, and Hugh kept sort of saying, That's very, very dense, this um, perhaps too much. um Six was more, it was a bit of a blur, um, more perhaps just slightly expanding, expanding the world. Certainly, I was very aware that California didn't have, that the Napa Valley map was just ridiculously um, crammed and we, we broke out. We had the Napa Valley map, but we also had detailed maps for, you know, Stagsley, Rutherford, things like that. Actually, the American coverage has increased quite considerably, even in this one. I think it's up to 40-something pages now, whereas it was 20-something from memory. Um, and this one, I think we've got... I think the balance seems about right. Um, but uh, it's it's just heartbreaking because you, you just you have to get the words into a particular shape round the map and you've always got far more to say than you have space to say it in. And you've got the designer saying, you can't, you know, you, we've got to have a picture. Help, help, help. So it's, it's, um, it's
0: quite a job juggling all the elements. One of the things you brought up in your introduction was how the average is every six years for an atlas, but the wine world, uh, despite the four-year or five-year turnaround for planting and harvesting and making a wine from a new vineyard maybe is more subject than ever to fashion. Yeah. What do you think about that? And is everything moving at a faster pace than when it just used to be Chardonnay, Merlot, Cabernet, and that was the story? Very
1: much so. And you can see the effect of fashion in uh, the style of wines. I mean, Australia probably is the most... Um, nifty, winemaking nation. Partly because that it, they all know each other. Even though it's a big country, they all see each other. They communicate. They go. You know, they all judge together at those wine shows. So if there's a trend like oh, I think our chardonnays are a bit too heavy and oaky, mate, then they all start to make these kind of austere, eye-wateringly light, dry, tart. Chardonnay suddenly from the next vintage. So there has, for instance, in Australia, been that huge change in its whites. Even its Rieslings became, for a while, for my even my taste, too demanding, too dry. Um, and now there's this big fashion for uh, Shiraz, which sometimes even calls Syrah, in a completely different mould from the old big bootstrapping Barossa type. And they're all planting it in cooler places and making more wines that are much more like a copy of Cote Roti than the the big, tarry, sweeter alcoholic essences that we, we used to see.
0: Is that a part of also just the increased ability to ship in cool temperatures? I mean, because when I think of old old Australia, I think of liquor muscats and <laughs> fortified ports. And as things have gotten better and better with the ability to... Have electricity and have air conditioning and ship uh, cooler. Has, yeah, Temp- well, temperature the
1: control, of course, absolutely revolutionised white wines th- throughout the world. Um, shipping uh, is a big factor in and uh, storage even is a is a very very important factor in the warmer wine regions. India, for instance, is hobbled by two things, the, the, even though. There's a rapidly growing middle class and wine is getting more and more fashionable and part of the Indian social life. But apart from these terribly uh, punitive taxes that are levied, um, there is a a great shortage of temperature controlled storage and uh, transport. And uh, it's a brave person who orders a red wine in an unknown location, (laughs) uh, which has probably been sitting around being baked, uh, which is a shame. I'm sure that will improve. But it, that's a, a bit of investment that somewhere as cool as um, you know, New York State or Britain, you don't even think about.
0: So you've covered the world of wine. What's next for the world of Jancis Robinson? What's next on your to-do list?
1: Um, I'm going to celebrate my wedding anniversary tonight. And I'm at the moment updating, Julia and I are updating the Oxford Companion There'll be a fourth edition out in fall of 2015, providing we get the work done. I shouldn't be here at all. I should be hunched over
0: the Oxford Companion, really. <laughs> Has the team gotten a bit bigger at at HQ Jancis Robinson? Beyond Julia, are there other people? That there
1: have... are other people on jancisrobinson.com, um, not on the books, although obviously the books have a people from the publishers and so on. Um, yes, I'm amazed. We Our Christmas dinner... This year, um, I think there'll be 12 people. On um, Only Julia and I, well, Julia and I are full-time, but the, and the others are part-time, but some of them are kind of three days a week. Richard Hemming, who's uh, a great guy who's um, got through the Master of Wine exams, um, uh, he's on three days a week. And uh, we have a team. Obviously, there are things that need doing that are nothing to do with writing, like the dreaded uploading of tasting notes in the correct format uh, and, you know, handling the membership and all that kind of thing. And then we have a a lovely crew of specialists. Um, uh, Walter Speller is a real upcoming force in Italy and very prolific. I'm very, very lucky. Um, Michael Schmidt on Germany and uh, who lives there which is great and uh, we've just got a new Spanish specialist who is a delight uh, who was the head sommelier at El Bulli and was voted Spain's best sommelier or something. Uh, it's called Ferran Senteis I think you pronounced it and he's just fizzing with ideas. Um, he writes and tastes but he, uh, he also, you know, he, he wants um, everything to be a video or, a, you know, his he's, is much is young and and experimental and and it's great. He's doing us a power of good, and of course we've got our columnists, Alder um, uh, Yarrow from Vinography, based in San Francisco, and uh, a very good, thoughtful, talented London-based master of wine, Alex Hunt, who writes sort of semi-philosophical essays on wine and wine tasting, and recently added Max Allen, one of the uh, in Australia, one of the more um, Ooh, thoughtful, um, funky Australian wine writers.
0: One of the things I always really appreciate about uh, you, you is that you knew the classics. You'd go to the 10-year-on Bordeaux tasting with Michael Broadbent and others, but you were quick to lend an ear to new emerging regions, whether that was Australia, whether that was New Zealand, whether that might be California at a time when not a lot was being brought into to England. Now that it's seemingly... We've discovered it all.
1: Oh, no, don't you believe that. Is that true? Oh, yeah. Uh, my next big, uh, ambitious um, plan trip is to a brand new vineyard in um, Yunnan uh, in the southern China, so they don't actually have to bury the vines in winter. But apparently, it's absolutely beautiful country, quite close to Tibet. So I think that, that should be very interesting.
0: Frances Robinson, she just published the World Atlas of Wine 7th edition, and she's still exploring the world. <laughs> Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Ra Moose and Thomas Bartlett.